from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the CER podcast. I'm Octavia Hughes, host of today's episode, and I'm joined by Camille Grant, Distinguished Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and by my colleague Luigi Scazzieri, Senior Research Fellow here at the CER. Thanks both for joining me. Thank you. Today we're going to be discussing European defence, and specifically the challenge of defence production. There's a perception that the fighting in Ukraine is at a stalemate, but in reality, both Ukraine and Russia are expending huge amounts of military equipment, which makes production capacity a key factor in the conflict. There are reports that Russia's production has been surging, while Europeans seem to be having difficulties increasing production and supplying Ukraine with what it needs. So in this episode, we're going to be exploring why that's the case. We'll also look at the state of European defence more broadly, examining the respective roles of NATO, the EU and smaller groups of countries. First, let me turn to you, Luigi. How big of an issue is defence production capacity and why have European countries found it more difficult to expand it? Thanks, Octavia. So as your introduction put it, there's definitely an issue in terms of Europe's ability to ramp up production. So one well-known example is how the EU promised to provide Ukraine with one million rounds of ammunition by March this year. But we know that meeting that is going to be challenging. It doesn't mean impossible, but at the end of last year, only a third of that target has been reached. So it will be difficult. The reason is that essentially after the end of the Cold War, defense spending across Europe decreased very significantly and defense industries adjusted in size accordingly, becoming used and structured to producing in much smaller numbers and more slowly and to having smaller stock. So even in a best case scenario, it would in any case take quite a long time from the moment you decide to increase production to production actually increasing because of course you need to set up new facilities to produce, hire new workers, secure the raw materials and so on. And then there are a set of issues that relate to uncertainty essentially. And what I mean is that despite these announcements of higher defence spending across much of Europe, in practice, governments have been quite slow in placing orders. And that has meant that defence companies have been unwilling to invest in expanding production capacity because for them, it's a risk to make an investment that might not pay off if governments then don't increase defence spending by quite so much as they said they would. And that issue is made worse by the fact that the medium term trajectory of defence spending is not very clear, actually, because we've seen a lot of promises, but it's unclear whether all countries are going to be able to stick to it in the medium term. And then finally, but I know Camille knows much more about me than this, there are issues relating to fragmentation, for example, both on the industry side, which doesn't really have a huge amount of very big players in Europe, and in terms of there not being a process through which European countries effectively aggregate their defence spending and kind of jointly do planning. We've seen a bit of that recently, for example, with ammunition, but it's still very underwhelming. Thanks, Luigi, for setting the scene. Camille, I want to turn to you now. Do you agree with Luigi's assessment of the main challenges? And perhaps could you expand a little bit on how big of an issue fragmentation is? Well, first of all, I very much agree with Luigi's assessment. And I think indeed we've been too slow. And I think we are more or less six months behind the curve. So it 
does give us that is helpful when we look at the midterm, you know, um, over the sort of one year horizon, I think we're going to be in a good place, but a sort of immediate challenge of meeting the Ukrainian expectations in terms of delivery of not only rounds of artillery, but also I would add air defense as a priority item in the current environment. I guess the challenge is across the, the whole supporters of Ukraine, the whole transatlantic community, None of our countries were prepared for that type of attrition or or uh, production facilities have been dimensioned to meet the demands of a very different type of conflict. So the ramping up does take time. And in all fairness to both the industry and the government, part of this is that it doesn't suffice to say that we're going to do something or even to place an order. The use then hit hard industrial realities in terms of production capacity, bottlenecks, skilled workforce uh, shortages. So there is a big ramping up that has started, again, a bit late, but that has started and will eventually deliver at some point this year or across Europe. The point about fragmentation of industry, I think it very much depends in which domain we're talking about. For ammunition production, it's rather an asset to have multiple production facilities across Europe, because as the European Commission is putting money into modernizing these facilities, as orders are coming, the ramping up doesn't rely on a single or a couple of companies, but can build on in a sort of healthy manner on multiple potential sites across Europe. So that's rather an asset. In the grander scheme of things, of course, the fragmentation of the European industry doesn't necessarily help being competitive, uh, being super efficient. And there are a number of examples of that when it comes to uh, armament production and the fact that there are way too many models of uh, battle tanks, infantry fighting vehicles across Europe, which doesn't help adding a very disciplined production of military equipment. Thanks, Camille. I want to stay with you to discuss the role of NATO in all of this. What has NATO done to push allies to increase defence production and to better coordinate it? Well, NATO has been on this issue relatively early. I used to chair the Conference of National Armament Directors, and we did call as early as June 22. The Secretary General of NATO called for a extraordinary Conference of National Armament Directors focused solely on the ability of industry to deliver. And there has been a number of meetings in the NATO premises, whether they're in NATO format or in the Rammstein format, to try to put our act together. So NATO, as I would say, essentially three roles. One is more about coordination and making sure that everyone is is on the same page and is focused on this. The second one is a sort of a matchmaking effort to create opportunities for cooperation amongst allies and to identify where a specific ally could bring, you know, a specific component when others can expand production capacity. And thirdly, there is an interesting dimension which was just recently emphasized, which is to use the NATO agency, so the NATO Support and Procurement Agency, NSPA, as a tool to contract multinational orders. And there was a recent announcement of a 1 billion euro order through NSPA, which is significant and adds to the role of the European defense agencies and of national frameworks that aggregate demand. So those are the sort of three strengths for NATO. NATO doesn't have the industrial toolbox that the European Commission has. NATO doesn't have money to give to industry. NATO doesn't buy by itself, but it is a player in this conversation next to the EU line of effort, which probably has a larger toolbox. Turning back to you, Luigi, what's the EU's role in all of this? Does it play a significant role? 
I guess the short answer is yes. So in particular, on the research side, the user involved in defense research well, since the early 2000s, but in particular since 2021 with the establishment of the European Defense Fund, which is quite a sizable pot of money and adds about 10% a year to the research and development budgets of EU members. So over the long term, DDF has the potential to kind of generate a more integrated defense industry of the sort that Camille was talking about. But it is a long-term tool, so it doesn't really have an impact on current situation, on efforts to increase production to supply Ukraine. And in that regard, there are other things that the EU has been trying to do. So the first is consolidating orders by member states, and we've seen a joint order of ammunition for Ukraine financed by the European Peace Facility. Second, the EU has been putting forward small financial incentives to kind of push member states to procure together through the so-called European Defence Industry Reinforcement through Cromwell Procurement Act in EU speak, often referred to as ADERPA. And then third, the EU is essentially funding directly the expansion of production capacity for ammunition through the Act in Support of Ammunition Production. I think it, these are still very small instruments, but their significance is in the fact that they mark the EU stepping more firmly, not only in defence research, as it has done already for a few years, but also in procurement. Thanks, Luigi. And do you think the EU's involvement in defence is set to grow? Possibly. So the EU has, I think, you know, in the research space, it's already quite well established. And it may have a greater role to play, in particular, in replicating what it has done for ammunition, for the expansion of production capacity for ammunition in other fields of equipment that Ukraine needs. Whether it moves into procurement more seriously, I think, is a different question. I mean, the main difficulty would be finding money to do that and then agreeing on what to buy. The EU has used the European Peace Facility to some degree for this, but there are issues and whenever it comes to using the pots of EU money in terms of all member states needing to agree, for example, of the degree to which bilateral assistance can be discounted from these common pots when calculating contributions. And third, also, and it's a bigger debate in, in EU defence about the degree to which you can buy non-European equipment or non-EU origin components with uh, EU money, because essentially it's an argument about time frame. In the long term, it makes sense for Europeans to, of course, have the capacity to produce the high-end equipment that they need, and that won't be there if you just rely on purchases from non-EU countries or indeed on buying black box equipment where you only do assembly and maintenance. But in the short term, the best equipment available may be non-EU equipment. I mean, my view is that it might make sense for the EU to adopt a more ad hoc approach and not tie its hands by taking a sort of case-by-case -case approach to evaluating risk. But I mean, in all of this, money is a huge question. And it's unclear how much money the EU will actually be able to come up with for its defence schemes. There's ideas about joint borrowing that sometimes come up, but not very realistic in the current context. So it's more a matter of whether perhaps better use can be made of the existing pots of money. And there's an idea gaining ground of redirecting some cohesion funding, for example, if member states are willing to subsidising the expansion of industrial capacity. Thank you, Luigi. Camille, the final question goes to you. Recently, there's been discussions of groups of countries getting together to form so-called capability coalitions to procure equipment for Ukraine. What do you make of them? I think they are a, an additional tool in the toolbox. So when it comes to support of Ukraine, I really don't think we should think in terms of competition between NATO, uh, EU, NATO agencies and EU agencies and national uh, multinational groupings. I think it's really important to be able to do what we can jointly and at pace more importantly. So from that perspective, the efforts by the French to establish an artillery coalition, by the Germans to work on the delivery of Patriots are valuable. 
and I think offer an additional mechanism to support Ukraine. The challenge is that this conflict is probably not going to be over anytime soon. So from my perspective, it is really important for the Europeans to act and to prepare for the, the long haul, if I may put it this way. What I mean by that is if this is indeed an attrition war, which is a combination of political will and industrial capacity, I mean, the EU has a lot of cards in its game and can indeed make a difference. And I think the core message ought to be to Vladimir Putin, we do have strategic patience. We do have both the will and the ability to sustain the support to Ukraine while rebuilding our own capabilities. And from that perspective, what happened with the EU effort so far has been admirable in the sense of where we start from, but I think needs to now be older and faster. So from that perspective, I think all the mechanisms that have been established about nine months ago with the efforts to support industry with a 500 million check from the Commission, with the joint procurement under the European Defense Agency, with the use of the European Peace Facility, I think it's time to take that to another level and to make sure that we have the ability to really make a difference both in the Ukrainian battlefield and in the rebuilding of European capabilities. Also bearing in mind that there are uncertainties when it comes to the US policy, whether it's support to Ukraine or more broadly, the degree of commitment to European security. Thanks, Camille and Luigi, for joining me on today's podcast. We'll be talking more about Ukraine next month in a podcast marking two years since Russia's full-scale invasion. So do subscribe if you want to be notified when that comes out. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.